This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Today on CityCast Denver, the Denver Post published a major investigation last week, revealing the Denver Art Museum's role in an international scandal. It involves sacred relics looted from Southeast Asia and a local scholar, Emma Bunker, who helped use the dam as a laundromat to validate false claims, as the Cambodian government's lawyer put it. Denver Post reporter Sam Tabachnik spent a year connecting the dots, and he's on the show today to explain. Today is Monday, December 5th. I'm Paul Caroli, in for Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Sam Tabachnik, welcome to CityCast Denver. Thank you for having me. So Sam, you interviewed 34 people over the course of a year. You reviewed hundreds of documents and emails. You even traveled around the world to report on the ground in Cambodia for this story. I would love to go to the moment where you knew this thing was a blockbuster, where you had something big on your hands. Take me to that moment. You know, I first learned about this story uh, a year ago in the uh, Pandora Papers uh, investigation and some of the reporting um, from those journalists who did an incredible job, uh, you know, on a host of different topics. They talked about a guy named Douglas Latchford, art collector, dealer, based in Bangkok, uh, a British guy, um, you know, raised in India when it was in under British rule. And they went into a lot of uh, Douglas Latchford's life and his assets. And he was using these offshore accounts to hold a lot of his antiquities and money. And that's what the, you know, Pandora Papers, much like the Panama Papers were exposing is how sort of the rich and powerful hide their assets overseas. As I was reading about Douglas Latchford, it came up that the Denver Art Museum had six pieces that had been donated from him. So I wrote that story up and was doing a little more kind of research, reading the indictment um, from when Douglas Lashford was indicted in the U.S. on a host of smuggling and fraud charges in 2019. And what I kept seeing was there was, in all the references to Douglas Lashford, they kept referencing cryptically this person they kept calling the scholar. And the scholar was a individual of museum consultant in Colorado. And that's kind of what they would say. And they would talk about how this scholar would over and over again throughout the years assist Douglas Latchford in creating false provenance histories or ownership histories for pieces. This woman would vouch for his accounts of when he had these pieces, where he had these pieces. And this scholar, this cryptic scholar, just kept showing up over and over again with a Colorado connection. And I couldn't shake that off. Right, right. And it's incredible from there. I mean, it's, it's a globe trotting criminal operation that lasted for decades. And like, we're going to put links to the stories, obviously, that you wrote in our in our show notes. But we have to talk about these two central characters. So there's Douglas Latchford, and then the scholar who you reveal is is a person named Emma Bunker. And I want to understand how their 
operation actually worked. And I think we should start in the 1960s in the Buriram province of Thailand. Sam, what was Douglas Latchford doing there? So Douglas Latchford was, he uh, made his money in pharmaceuticals uh, initially and then some real estate plays. And he started getting into collecting, uh, you know, according to interviews that he's done over the years, started getting into collecting in the 50s, buying some antiquities in, in Bangkok there where he was based. In the 1960s, according to people on the ground in in Thailand, he learned about a secret trove of Thai treasures that became known as the Prakon Chai Bronzes. And he was infatuated. He kept returning to the villages every time there were big fines. Over the course of two years, basically the entire village, I was told, took part in this. I mean, this was the thing to do because you could make big money finding these large bronze statues. So by by find you maybe we could also say loot. You know, they're taking these ancient relics from these sites and then exchanging them for how you describe wads of cash from this Douglas Latchford guy. That's how that's how the operation starts, right? Correct. Yeah, I I think there was much less attention paid to kind of how things were coming and going. Yes, technically illegal, but were people really checking? Was this something that anyone cared about? And I think a lot of people would say no, this was not something that was a top law enforcement priority, either there or in other places. Hmm. Certainly for these villagers, this was a way to make actual money. Right. So you describe, um, you, you quoted somebody as, as calling the Denver Art Museum a, a laundromat for stolen artifacts. How does that work? Can you explain that? Yeah, so these these antiquity dealers, people like Douglas Latchford who were dealing in stolen art, the way that cultural heritage investigators, law enforcement have described it to me is this is kind of par for the course. This is how you keep your reputation you place your items in museums. That is how you uh, earn cultural cachet. If you have items in museums, museums are deemed to be esteemed institutions with rigorous standards. They wouldn't be showcasing stolen art, right? I mean, this is a this is a museum sometimes held in the public trust. This ta- it takes tax dollars. They're cultural icons. You could get an item placed in a museum either by gift or by sale or by loan. That would increase the value of your piece, and you could market it. Um, and emails that I uh, that I obtained showed basically how someone like Douglas Latchford, but it wasn't just him. Other people would do this too. They would get items placed in museums like Denver or the Med in New York, and then they would go to to prospective buyers and say, "Hey, listen, I have these items in museums here, and I have more like them," um, and that ups the value. And it also kind of assuages the uh, the thinking from the buyer that, okay, is this a legit item? Well, it must be. It's in the Denver Art Museum. Well, what does the Denver Art Museum say about this? Did they know that they were being used by Latchford in this way? The Denver Art Museum never granted me an interview uh, throughout this entire process. I asked multiple times over the course of months. I never actually had a, I was never granted an actual interview with the Denver Art Museum. So they responded to emailed questions uh, across several weeks for various stories since I started reporting on this a year ago. 
And what the museum comes back to over and over again, they cite papers, uh, court documents, both in the Latchford indictment in 2019 and other forfeiture filings that happened across 2020, 2021, 2022. What the museum says is, listen, Latchford was lying to us. He falsified these documents and he lied to us. It's what the investigators say in the court documents. We were lied to. Do you think that's legit? Is, is that an appropriate standard to hold them to? Or, or is, there, is there more they should have known? You know, as, as it was explained to me by, by people who have followed this for a long time, it was in nobody's interest to think very hard about the objects that people were enjoying and people were profiting from. I think there's no question Douglas Latchford was lying to them. He was lying to lots of people. You know, I mean, according to investigators, he was falsifying these documents repeatedly. You know, I think some of the crime experts that I talked to said that there should have been more scrutiny on somebody like Latchford. Uh, but as I talk about in my story, you know, Latchford was very, he was very smooth. He was very good. He made connections across government officials, museum curators, and he had Emma Bunker in the Denver Art Museum. And so the Denver Art Museum, relying on their longtime board member, Emma Bunker was a board member. She was a consultant. She helped them build and boost their Asian art collection. She and her husband donated over 200 pieces to the museum. So they have Emma Bunker vouching for her good friend. And I think that was enough. So here we are today, Sam. This whole thing has been revealed. I know the Denver Art Museum didn't want to talk to you, but do you have any sense of what's happening inside the museum right now? How do they think about this stuff? Has there been any change? I think the Denver Art Museum, like most museums you know, in the U.S., in Europe, are facing a reckoning over a lot of their collection. And it's not just Asian art. It's Native American art. It's South American art. It's African art. I wrote... Uh, last year and earlier this year about the Benin bronzes um, that were once in the uh, Denver Art Museum that were taken out of its collection in order to be sent back. Those Benin bronzes were plundered by British forces in the late 1800s from what's now southern Nigeria, the old kingdom of Benin. So this is not just happening with, with Asian art. This is happening with art all across the world. Yeah, that's interesting. It was something I thought about a lot while I was reading your pieces seems like there's never really been a really firm line between legitimate scholarship and research and artistic pursuit and this illegitimate looting and this like back channel trading and this black market dealing. And I don't know, how do you think about those two worlds overlapping and like how this whole art international art trade works? Well, I think it's been described to me, you know, a lot of people who I think maybe are trying to reckon with kind of either their previous beliefs or their previous actions say, well, we weren't talking about this back then. This has all changed. And therefore, it kind of wipes away the sort of responsibility. And, you know, one one art crime professor sort of likened it to cigarette smoking decades ago, where they're like, well, we didn't know it was bad for you. And what she's saying is we did know it was bad for you. We did know back then we just weren't talking about it. But it was known. You know, there has been, I think, a lot of of conversation or a lot of um, explanation uh, by Western elites and 
Emma Bunker and Douglas Latchford wrote consistently and talked consistently in interviews and in their writings about how in a country like Cambodia, if, if these pieces were not in Western collections, they would have been destroyed by the Khmer Rouge or through other civil strife. And it is a argument that is made kind of over and over again in order to, I think, kind of explain or help people feel okay with, with what they're doing. It's safer if it's in Western hands. And let us let us keep it safe for you while you figure out your own thing, and, and then maybe we'll give it back. Hmm. So we talked a little bit about the shifting values in the art world around around this stuff. And, and I want to read a couple of quotes from your piece here, just to try to get inside Emma Bunker's mind a little bit, the scholar. She once wrote, Collectors and dealers are responsible for much that is good in the art world. She said they were once considered culture heroes who rescued and preserved artifacts from ancient cultures. Do you think that she thought that she and Latchford were doing good at some level? You can tell by the emails that I was reading in this case that came from Latchford's computer that showed the back and forth between them over the years that they were really up in arms about quote-unquote blood antiquities and these sort of articles that are being written in the New York Times and elsewhere about, you know, their their exploits. And they, they really feel under attack, it seems. They felt um, that they were preserving culture. Nobody would have seen these pieces if not for us preserving them. They would have been destroyed in civil war or social strife. That they were doing a good for humanity by preserving these pieces. And the fact that they were getting filthy rich along the way that, you know, that also happened, I guess. Douglas Latchford certainly got rich. It's, it's a bit unclear how much uh, someone like Emma Bunker benefited financially exactly from this. Certainly Latchford made a good chunk of money on this. Why do you think she did it then? You know, somebody was, uh, I interviewed the the head of the antiquities unit in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, and it is one of the only units, if not the only unit, designed specifically to combat the illicit antiquities trade. And this guy, Matthew Bogdanos, who has quite an interesting career, he was a Marine in Iraq and basically took it upon himself after the looting of the museum in Baghdad to go after these sort of cultural crimes. And he runs this unit out of the Manhattan DA's office, and he's been extremely aggressive in going after wealthy collectors, gallery owners, and getting items back from museums. And something he said is that it's not always about the money for, for these people. I think, you know, that motivates some people, but there's a prestige, there is a, an esteem about someone like Emma Bunker maybe getting these prized pieces from Cambodia into the Denver Art Museum. Maybe she didn't benefit monetarily from that, but it was culturally very significant and professionally very significant. Hmm. So let's let's wrap up there because Emma Bunker's name is on a gallery featuring Southeast Asian art and artifacts at the Denver Art Museum today. Um, she and Latchford have both passed away in the last couple of years. But Sam, where do we go from here? What's going to happen next? 
Well, it's going to be interesting. I've not heard from the Denver Art Museum about if they're taking any action in response to these pieces. I have no idea. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. I don't know. Uh, certainly, Emma Bunker's name is up on the fifth floor of the Martin Building. You can go see it. I mean, this conversation is not going to go away, not just with Emma Bunker and Douglas Latchford, but this is going to keep popping up. There are going to be more and more countries Cambodia has been especially aggressive in going around the world with their team, showing wealthy collectors and museums that, hey, these these pieces were plundered. We have evidence. Give them back. And I think other countries are, are taking note, and they're going to start copying this method. Well, we'll see how that plays out in the next few years, I guess. And uh, Sam, I trust you'll be covering that, at least the Denver aspect. That's right. Well, Sam Tabachnik, thanks for joining me on CityCast Denver. Thanks so much for having me. About five hours after I spoke with Sam Tabachnik about his reporting, he posted another story with an update from the Denver Art Museum. As of Friday evening, the dam has deactivated a fund named for Emma Bunker, a.k.a. The Scholar. According to Sam's latest story, the dam established the Emma Codwallader Bunker Asian Art Acquisition Fund last year at the request of her friends and family. No word yet on whether or not her name will remain on the gallery. I'll let you know when I know. And here's what else Denverites are talking about. Lead pipes. Like many cities across the country, we've got lots of them, and it would be better if we didn't, since lead water lines can lead to lead poisoning. According to the Associated Press, the Environmental Protection Agency likes the way Denver's been approaching the problem, and last week they approved our $700 million plan to remove all our lead pipes. They even went so far as to call Denver Water's approach one of the most successful replacement programs in the country. Take that, lead! And finally, a truly bone-chilling development out of Nederland. The famous Frozen Dead Guy days will not return in 2023. The Boulder Daily Camera reports that the relationship between festival organizers and the town of Nederland fell apart after last year's fest, with town officials accusing the festival of ignoring their own plans and creating confusion, disorganization, and safety concerns. But Nederland's loss is Estes Park's gain. The Stanley Hotel has agreed to host the annual Coffin Races, Hearse Parade, and Frozen Dead Guy Lookalike Contest next March. So will it feel the same as it did in Nederland? No. But will it still be really, really weird? I guarantee it. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute and tell the head of the Denver Art Museum, Christoph Heinrich, about us. Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, by texting Denver to 66866. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye. Swash back. Swash back. Swash.